0: Hey, it's Mistress Carrie, reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 16 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Jumptown Skydiving. Conveniently located 70 miles west of Boston, Jumptown Skydiving is where commercial skydiving began in the United States in 1959. So if you have ever wanted to jump out of a perfectly good airplane and check skydiving off of your bucket list, now is the perfect time to do it. Fall in New England is absolutely beautiful. Why not leave peep from two and a half miles up going 120 miles an hour? I'm just going to warn you that once you try it once, you might get addicted. Either way, you are going to love it. So head to Jumptown.com and get all of the details and make your reservation. Jumptown Schedules Tandem Skydives, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by Latini Creative Solutions. In this very strange time, if you are looking to rebrand your company, or if you just went out on a limb and started your own company for the first time and really want to energize and develop your company's identity, Latini Creative Solutions can help you. They have over 20 years of experience in design, print, and marketing, specializing in creative solutions that capture your voice and deliver your message. From supporting and energizing your already established brand to developing your company's identity and marketing campaigns, Latini Creative Solutions provides design that is thoughtful, focused, and creatively executed. You can see their work in cocktails in the war room or even the logos of the Mistress Carrie podcast. Find out more at latinicreative.com. Now, before we get to this week's podcast, I want to send a special shout-out to all of the people that have a Mistress Carrie backstage pass, including the newest recipients of the passes, Karen, Mike, Larkin, Sharon, Jeff, Eric, Tom, Mark, Amanda, and Jeff. The Mistress Carrie backstage pass gives you way more exclusive access to me, and my life, and the podcast, and Cocktails in the War Room, and Wednesday. And is also, very soon, going to give you discounted merchandise in the official Mistress Carrie online store. You get access to exclusive online polls, Q&As, blogs, and so much more. Get your Mistress Carrie Backstage Pass online at patreon.com slash Carry, Or just click the link in the description of this podcast. Okay, episode 16, I think, is really interesting, super informative, and is one of the reasons why I started the podcast in the first place. I have always said that everyone's story is interesting. And John Guarnieri's story is just that. He's the head of security for Shinedown, he's the COO of Silver Spear Security, he's a graduate of Norwich University. And he's a former Secret Service agent. And we had an incredibly interesting talk about what it's like to tour with rock bands. What it's been like dealing with COVID-19. And a real backstage look at what it's like to be in the Secret Service during a tumultuous election year. John's kind of done and seen it all. Plus, he gave a lot of great advice about keeping your family safe during these crazy times. And even the band and his perspective on that amazing night at the Xfinity Center a couple years ago when the guys from Shinedown brought me up on stage and sang Simple Man to me in front of 26,000 people and made me cry. He's an amazing guy, super interesting, and this is one of the examples of pulling back the curtain and introducing you to people that make the concerts and the live experiences happen that you love. I'm honored to call him a friend and fellow masshole. Allow me to introduce you to John Guarnieri. (laughs)
1: And you're listening to Mistress Carrie Hi everybody, this is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters And you're listening to the one, the only Mistress hey, this is David from the band Disturb. And you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. This is Marilyn Manson, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie.
2: Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite,
1: Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to Mistress Carrie. <gasps> oh, God.
2: Oh! Yeah!
0: How are you? I
2: am doing good. I'm doing really well, actually, considering everything that's going on right now.
0: Yeah, the world is a little bit crazy. Yeah, it's, it's one
2: of those things, too, where you're kind of... you wait. We, I woke up in March. Well, I back it up a little bit. I had just got done doing the European tour um, with Shinedown, and I had like a week off, and then I did the Rock Legends cruise where I was doing security for Roger Daltrey. And so... Once we get back from – that's like end of February. I fly out to California to do some office meetings, look at some new festivals. And I'm with my CEO and my office manager, my vice president, and we're leaving San Fran. As soon as we take off, we get the alert on our phone, San Fran has been shut down. Like they're not – it's got that that weird – like TMZ put out a bunch of, hey, this city shut down. And we are kind of like, What? Like, because we had heard rumblings of this virus, the coronavirus, obviously in China and moving across the the world. And we were kind of like, well, it's not going to get here. But once NFL or once the NHL shut down, then I knew it was like, this is serious because those guys will play through hell, literally. And it just kind of was very, very kind of awakening thing that, hey, man, we have to all kind of kind of band together to kind of figure out what's going on. Because it's still, no one knows what's really going on still. All this stuff is backtracking or like the CDC or the WHO, and you're kind of like, man, let's just, can we all work together, put aside all our differences and just kind of figure out and help each other?
0: Well, that's, I think, the craziest part is that now all of a sudden science and the virus have become politicized. And I think no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, people are scared about the virus. And in the United States... They say between 36 and 42% of our population is uh, obese or overweight at least, which is one of the things that makes you more susceptible to catch the virus and that it could actually kill you. So it's like, never mind cancer patients and people that are asthmatic and that have any kind of breathing things. There are millions of Americans that are petrified of getting this. And then on the other side, there's millions of Americans that are like, My business is dying, including all of us in the entertainment industry and healthy people that are going, I'm not sick. I don't want to have to wear a mask. I don't understand what's going on. And this virus has found a way to pit Americans against each other in a way that almost no other enemy could. It's just a really weird time right now. It's so strange
2: yeah, I mean ultimately we're we're our own worst enemy when it comes to this. And like one of the things you just mentioned, obviously every family businesses, restaurants, department store like all that's affected, but the industry, obviously since I've met you and got to know you, appreciate everything you've done, um, is that this entertainment industry is so vast, like everything from catering to truck drivers to lighting, to video, to radio personalities, to record labels, to bands, to crew, like it's all crazy how, it's just been just completely decimated. And this industry was the first one to go, whether it's sports, music, any of that. It'll probably be the last one to come back fully, which is kind of um, disheartening because you do see some of the pain and the hardships that a lot of really great men and women in this industry are going through right now.
0: Will Hunt from Evanescence a couple of weeks ago on the podcast raised a really important question and I don't want it to get glossed over. There are a lot of people that think the entertainment industry is not essential, not important. Uh, obviously, it's not curing cancer. It's not you know feeding the hungry and directly and that we work in an industry that is somewhat disposable. But what Will pointed out is that it is America's number one export on, above all else above our natural resources, above our technology, above our scientific endeavors. The entertainment industry and the amount of money that it generates worldwide props up the American economy in a way that I don't think the average American that's not in the industry understands because of what you're talking about. That the tentacles of the entertainment industry go out into almost every other industry that we have.
2: Right, and you kind of mentioned the idea that some people think, well, music is essential. Well, I don't know if it's scientific or not, but I I tend to believe that music can be a healing factor for certain people, and what's the first thing that happens when someone, say there's an earthquake or there's a shooting, God forbid, the first thing that they organize is a benefit concert for those families or that culture or that city or that whatever happened, but where's our benefit concert? And I don't know if that comes off as selfish, but it's a thing where we prop up or get uh, this industry helps so many people that when we need the help, who's kind of helping us.
0: Yeah. And it, you know, I I bring up WAF all the time in this podcast. Um, And obviously that helped you and I meet in the first place. It facilitated my relationships with all of the musicians and the industry people that I know for the last 30 years waf going off the air on february 21st isn't considered uh, coronavirus related right because they sold the right. signal and put the station off the air so for me i'm not eligible for a lot of the coronavirus relief efforts that are going through even though the fact that i haven't gotten back on the air and gone back to work is 100% directly correlated to the coronavirus because since WAF went off the air, within the next few weeks of which I had job interviews and stuff, uh, the whole industry shut down. So just trying to apply for jobs, it's like people don't even pick up the phone because no one's hiring in any part of this industry whatsoever, which was really part of the reason why I started my company and launched this podcast because I was like, you know, I can do all of this on my own. And I think there's a lot of content with the way that the industry was going before the coronavirus when WAF got sold. I just think there's so many interesting people to talk to that a lot of these mainstream uh, big company outlets just don't it doesn't fit into their outline of of how they work and i i mean that's why i started this so i think there's a lot of people that are finding new ways to create including the musicians because they have to right now
2: right one of the things i've always harped on is because i try and maintain a level head and stay positive uh, because i am responsible for people in a security company that depend on me to kind of be like that kind of kind of like almost like a, uh, like a little Butler for them in that sense. And so I've, I've always told my people that, Hey, if in this downtime, yeah, this sucks. And there's a lot of stuff we can't control, but if you don't come out of this, whatever we're going through this pandemic, either healthier, smarter, a better husband, a better girlfriend, a better kid, a better son, a better musician, a better, entrepreneur like th- that's on you and so for me this has kind of helped me kind of and you said it best like you're doing this thing right here you can talk to unique voices you can still be yourself probably more so because you don't have to deal with the corporate sponsorship type stuff and you can kind of create your niche where you're this is hey i'm mr Carrie and i'm doing something badass on my own now and i wish more people kind of figure that out sooner as opposed to just kind of if I like snap it to be like, oh I, I, four months in, I guess I'll figure something out. Because when this world opens back up, there'll be a lot of people who didn't adapt. They'll get left behind. And yes, that is heartbreaking, but you can kind of control your destiny in this situation.
0: Well, let's let's rewind a little bit, because I really want people that don't know who you are, that didn't really get a sense in my little intro of, you know, the the brief description of your resume. Um, I know that you've been hunkered down in Massachusetts throughout the coronavirus, but are you originally from here?
2: Yeah, I was born in Haverhill, Mass., and then lived there for like literally probably a couple months, I think. Moved to Ashland, and then when I moved from Ashland with my family, we moved to Wellesley where my grandparents were living. And then from Wellesley, I was there all the way through freshman year of high school, from Wellesley, we moved to Groton, Mass. And I went to Lawrence Academy, uh, repeated my freshman year, graduated in 2004. And then 2004, I went to Norwich University in the Corps of Cadets, did the Navy ROTC, and graduated in 2008. So I've always been kind of obviously hunkered down to England. I love the Four Seasons. I love everything about here. And I don't really want to live anywhere else.
0: How did you make it through Norwich and not end up in the military? I thought that was like the fast track to just end up in yeah. the military was getting into Norwich and graduating from there.
2: So I believe West Point, um and Coast Guard, I think maybe one other are the only ones where once you go there you go there, you you graduate as a second lieutenant. Norwich, VMI, schools like that, you have the option to either live the lifestyle which I chose. Or live the lifestyle and commission as a second lieutenant in whatever branch you want to do. Um, I've always loved the structure and the kind of, like, I always excel when people are yelling at me. And so when I went through in 2004, like, that's before kind of, that's not, I'm not even going to say hazing. Um, it was more like you could get yelled at. You, hey, do 20 push-ups for talking in line or stuff like that where I really loved. I love making the beds, um, measuring the... The T-shirts, like a dollar bill size. Like, I just love the structure of that, shining boots. And in 2000, my sophomore year, my dad got sick with a brain aneurysm, was in a coma. And my big, that's usually the year you kind of, I was like, man, I can really do this military thing. I love it. And I'm like, part of me is like, man, I wish, I can't, God forbid, I get shipped somewhere and I need, my mom needs me or my sisters for the time. Um... There's always that fear, like, I, I'm better to serve kind of my family here. It's still – but I'm like, you know what? I'm still going to do Navy RFC. I'm still going to wake up at 6 a.m. and do Reveille. Like, I love the military aspect of it. And so, obviously, my, um, my dad recovered. And so, once I left in – two thousand or graduated in 2008, um, I kind of put all my eggs in the basket for, like, the federal agency type stuff, just to, my way of serving. And um, that's how I ended up in the Secret Service.
0: I am fascinated by the, I hate to use the word, but the secretive aspect of a lot of the government agencies. When you start talking about the clandestine service, you talk about the secret service and all of the movies about the secret passageways and bunkers and the the books for presidents. Like, I, I'm a buff for American history and having grown up here as well. It's kind of impossible to grow up in this part of new England and not just be immersed in American history because I mean, we drive by it every day. It's impossible. And I was fascinated when I met you, I didn't know that you had been in the secret service. And I found that out afterwards. And I was like, Holy shit. Like on one hand, I never would have expected that because you don't bump into people every day that were like, oh, by the way, I was in the Secret Service. It's a pretty rare thing. And on the other hand, I was like, well, he's doing personal security for rock stars. It makes total sense.
2: Right, and one of the things too, everyone's always like, well, why'd you leave? Um, I think every time you kind of, I had gone through a divorce and it was like the perfect time to kind of reset. I had met my CEO. Um, in 20 right in 2013 he was out with uh, doing that Charlie Sheen tour doing security for him but after that huge thing that big fighting guy with the TV show um, and so like everyone's hanging out with Charlie or whatever and I see Chris Loudon my CEO in the corner I immediately be lied to him I find out what he did and like I was very fascinated I'm obviously fascinated with the security and protection so we're talking I'm like man I might get out after um, this next campaign uh, because I might get kind of burnt out from traveling you think well let me know I'm thinking about launching relaunching some stuff and so that last campaign year I was probably home 30 days that year I mean you'd wake up in T deck, New Jersey or was Wisconsin for like literally three weeks of campaigning you just jump around it got to the point where I started I was drinking too much um, obviously I had my personal life goals stuff going through um, but yeah, it's, again, it's, it's just very – I mean I love the security aspect of it. And out here, um, there are politics obviously as you know, but it's a different type of politics. I can still kind of be myself in the sense of I don't have to be kind of – if you're the Secret Service, like you can't – I couldn't have a car with a bumper sticker that said – Go Obama or go Trump or whoever, you have to be very apolitical. At least out here, I could be kind of myself. And I'm fortunate to work with bands and people that allow me to be that way.
0: We're neck deep in one of the most tumultuous election seasons the United States has ever weathered. Can you talk to me about what it's like to be? A Secret Service agent. And obviously the pace of campaigning is not what it was in years prior because of the coronavirus. But can you talk a little bit about when you're six, seven weeks out of a a national election? What it is that a Secret Service agent, because you were part of the the detail that helped to protect President Obama, right? That you were. You are advancing locations and campaign stops.
2: And so when I, what's obviously it kind of starts with the, the primaries where you have like say 20 candidates, once that gets narrowed down, whoever the incumbent isn't, um, they will, you'll have, like you start doing like those things uh, where it's like you have 12 people up there doing the, like the, the, whatever the, their talks as that gets narrowed down, Four or five of those people will be considered kind of high profile, and they'll start actually getting their own um, secret service protection um, as they go out campaigning to win that uh, nomination for that party. And so, like, like when we were going through, obviously there was Romney, there was all that craziness, but then you also have the Obama side where he still has twenty-four-seven coverage, his whole everything, the White House. Um, the vice president, Joe Biden, at the Naval Observatory. Like that doesn't change. But then you start adding in all these separate people, whether it is someone like Hillary or John McCain or Ben Carson. So that's one of those things where it's just just nonstop. And as you get narrow that all down, you get obviously to the one or two people. And then from there, it's just kind of literally jumping around. We travel on C-17s and C-5s with, say like the motorcade the beast the limo um, all these assets and you're kind of just like what i said earlier at the time you're just like it's just non-stop like it's just it's blood money you are you don't know what city you're waking up in and it's just go 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 and you probably hear the same speech 50 times that week doesn't matter who the candidate is and there is a mental strain um with it especially people that have kids or families from the time and so it, it, it is a very, um, it can be daunting. I don't regret any of the training or any of the time spent in there, uh, but it, it does get kind of crazy. And obviously, the logistics for playing something like the inauguration or the, the parade route, like anything like that, is just exponentially more insane. Obviously, with you have to worry about terrorism, whether it's protests riots you have to deal just all this crazy stuff uh, that that you have you have to have a huge team and a great team at that
0: before i was on the radio um when i was just working part-time for the promotions department at waf my full-time job was working as a roadie building stages rigging lights and this was in you know the mid towards the late 90s and that's when president clinton was in office and the staging company i did a lot of work for was based out of little rock which obviously is where he was from and so he used the company that i work for to do a lot of his um event staging and i actually got to be on site for two commencement speeches that president clinton delivered i believe they one was in 96 one was in 97 uh, up at Dartmouth and then once down at Yukon. And so for that week of, you know, building these massive stages for these huge university commencements, when you're rigging lights and staging and security barricades and all that for um, an appearance of a, a sitting president, it was very eye-opening to me being around the Secret Service. And these are just the two little glimpses, the, the, you know, the, the peek behind the curtain, let's say, of how prepared and how much advance work goes into just a one hour appearance of the president. There's weeks and months worth of planning and having a bunch of like rock roadies getting followed by secret service agents because we are building the stage that the president's going to stand on and you know hanging the lights he's going to stand under it was incredibly eye-opening but again like we were talking about growing up with this love of american history it was fascinating to see the suvs that could control air traffic within a thousand miles of the president's location and and this was, you know, 20 something years, it was 25 years ago. And, right. you know, you you lived that life every day. But for me, it was like, you know, just these two experiences that I thought were amazing.
2: Well, it's, you kind of talk about like the advancing part, but if as successful as you are as, when you were on, on the air for WAF, you still did your t- version of that advancing. You figured out everything you knew about these people. You set up their parking. You helped them get into the venue. And so it's one of those things where everyone's kind of like, oh, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a ton of stuff that goes into it. And you might not have to deal with, say, uh, getting a helicopter to land for an airlift or uh, that type of stuff. But you're still doing the advanced work to be successful at your job. I think that's one of those things a lot of people don't realize that, hey, you're still doing a lot of the same basic principles that I would do. Um, It might be a different situation or whatever, but you're still putting in the work to make sure you're successful when you actually have to do what your task is.
0: One of the uh, one of the things that I got to do when President Clinton spoke down at UConn um, was me and some of the other guys on the crew walked over and, and he had landed on one of the athletic fields in Marine One and we had kind of been walking around and you know we had film cameras i mean this is the mid to late 90s and one of the um one of the marine like one of the pilots said do you guys want to come over and 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 look at the helicopter and i was like yes so i got to go inside and kind of check it out and to this day in my war room where i do cocktails in the war room every tuesday i have a matchbook and a deck of cards that has the logo on it because it was the only thing he had. We were like, nobody's ever gonna believe us that we got to sit in the president's helicopter. And he was like, let me hook you up with some stuff that'll totally prove it. And so he gave right. me like a deck of cards and a matchbook with the presidential seal and all that. And I kept them because it, it's, it's one of those things where we're so used to now being able to take pictures of literally everything but back then I have one picture of me standing in front of Marine One that I had to get developed and these two little tchotchkes that prove basically (laughs) that I did this job. Like, can you talk about some of the things that you got to experience and some of the things that you got to leave that part of your career behind with? Um,
2: Yeah, so when you first start kind of work at the White House, you're like your rotations and where you're posted, obviously it's based on seniority and, so one of the – I mean, I'm not going to get too specific, but one of the posts you're kind of in the uh, – by the White House kitchen. And the, if you go down the hallway a little bit, there is a part of the White House where you could see like these uh, charred – kind of looks like someone lit fire to a bunch of bricks. Well, that was the original burn marks from when they stormed the White House in 1812. I think, yeah, I think, yeah, 1812. And so you kind of wow. look at that and you're like – like, man, think of the bullshit this hallway has heard and seen, and when you, you look up at there you can actually touch the the original burn marks from the they started that year. And there's this is different places around just the White House where you kind of whether you go through the Rose Garden or the East Wing Colonnade and you walk through these these rooms, the West Wing, you go into the Oval Office and you're kind of like, Man, this is it's dumbing to me, or it was at the time because I just took it for granted in the sense of this is my job. Like I don't cool. It's a great room. Hollywood makes this room look like it's huge. It's not. But as you kind of step back and reflect, you're like, man, I I saw. and did some awesome stuff. Um, just different times when this been like fence jumpers or events like that. At the White House is very like distinct memories. I have who I was working with when stuff happened. When a plane overhead. Um, Broke the no-fly zone, and you're kind of scrambling to get people in place and hunker down, like it's stuff like that. Where you're very kind of it's, it's very fascinating. But like trips, like I, I've, I've been to Bethlehem, which Jesus was born. Um, been to the Gaza Strip, Israel, Jakarta, all these places, South, uh, South America, just with traveling with this, uh, that entity, and you're kind of. It's it's just very cool. And you obviously you see everyone, you meet everyone, every World Series champion. I remember obviously as a Red Sox fan talking to um, Mike Lowell and uh, Terry Francona a lot as they came through on the East Side to enter the White House for their uh, presentations. And so seeing that stuff, it kind of brought like that kind of oh man, this is badass. Like these are the Red, these are the champions. And uh, for me, that stuff like that's cool. But again, everyone's they're all people. We all go to bed, we all, I just for me, I'm kind of dumped to that part of it, but I am very grateful to that.
0: Is there a Hollywood representation of what that job is like or what the White House inner workings are like? A, a, a movie or something that, that as a regular person that didn't serve in the Secret Service, that wasn't walking around the White House for work, did you ever see a movie or a television show or something and go, okay, that's about as close as it gets?
2: Um, I think I never really watched the West Wing when it was out, but in terms of like the dynamic of the different personalities, that's very close. Obviously a lot of the storylines is kind of whatever, but the dynamic of working with different people and seeing the hustle bustle on like a day where there's something crazy happening or there's um, that type of thing. Um, Like say something like when Bin Laden, they announced Bin Laden like days like that where you're kind of like, this is insanity. So that aspect of it, um, the Clint Eastwood movie, In the Line of Fire, just for the sheer fact, is Clint. And there is there is some of the stuff in that was pretty good. But then you look at movies where, and I love them, like White House Down or Olympus Has Fallen. It's just, it's very Hollywoody in the sense of nonstop action and I mean, I'm not going to talk numbers or like stuff like that, but you're kind of like stuff like this would never happen. But it's, I mean, it's, it's, you know what? I think uh, I think every American should have the opportunity to at least go through there and just kind of see what the place is about and what it represents, and kind of see like what a daily day of life is. I think people would respect it more and kind of understand. Hey, this is what goes on. But, yeah, I mean, there's there's so many times where you're kind of like, you'll see something in a movie, uh, like White House Down, like Jamie Foxx, Jason Tatum. So they'll be in certain rooms or whatever, and, like, you're like, well, that painting's not there or that wall's not that color or no way is that room that big. And so for us, we kind of laugh and whatever. But, hey, it's entertainment. And as long as it keeps uh, the Secret Service in a good light, obviously there's always that corrupt agent in all these movies. Um, but yeah, it's, it is very fascinating. I wish there was more kind of out there. I know there's been, the Secret Service has produced some documentaries on like the Beast, the limousine, where it's actual, the Secret Service running everything and stuff like that. But, uh, there is also a security and aspect where you can't sh- really show everything and every capability.
0: Do you guys, as the Secret Service, come up with the, with the secret names for like the president, the first lady, the, the kids, or do they get any say in what you guys are going to call them for code words?
2: I mean, I feel like
0: that's kind of like a fighter pilot call sign or something.
2: Right. Like you would think certain people would have like make up their own names. Like Obama, um, he was renegade, Michelle was renaissance. And then so every administration, they start with the letter R or whatever for them, it was R, um, for, um, the Clintons. I believe it was T. I think he was Timberwolf, or maybe that was George W. I was I was only there for the Obama stuff. But so everything's based on one letter, and they kind of go through there. Um, like you're not gonna come across a guy that's like, "Hey, there's uh, pancake face," or like these weird like Dick Tracy villain names. So it, it's very, um, <laughs> it's it's one of these things where you're kind. Of, and, right. It's one of these things where you're kind of like. Um, the general public, it's just when people are moving, obviously with motorcades and um, stuff like that, it's more of a, just a kind of like, hey, hey, Michelle's coming, oh, there's there's Malia and Sasha, or there's Bo the dog. Uh, you're not saying like they're real, obviously for obvious reasons.
0: Um, I have a lot of military friends that have been in, in circles around the White House, and without getting political, Because at the end of the day, whoever it is that you're protecting, whether they be a rock star, a politician, a billionaire, it doesn't matter who it is. Like you said, they're people at the end of the day, just like everyone else. Terry Francona, Mike Lowell, at the end of the day, they're Red Sox World Series champions, but they're people. And I have heard from people, whether they be Marines that have been in and around the White House during the Obama administration, that taking all the politics aside... That he was an incredibly genuine person, that remembered people's names that you wouldn't expect. You know, just the the staff and would ask how your family was doing and would remember incredibly personal details about people that you wouldn't expect the leader of the free world to to remember. And was very personable with the staff. Was that your experience?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where. They, you're with them so much, and it's not like they're you're not gonna. Your shift might be different, but for that, if you're there as long as I was, like over the course of seven or so years, you're gonna um, recognize faces. And sometimes I think a lot of people like, well, why do you say my name? Or like that's the president. That's there. I whoever's in that position, guy, girl, gay, straight, dude. I don't care who you are. I have the utmost respect for who you are doing that because there is an unsurmountable amount of stress. And everything going on that the general public and media has no idea. And so, more for myself, I would meet like the um, some of like the, they're, they're cool people you'd kind of talk to, would be like their aides, or you talk to the the other people kind of under him where they're kind of out in the hallway to talk with you. Um, and I, there's a couple now I still talk to where you get a text every now and then, or just kind of, hey, how's it going? Like, what are you up to? There is a, I don't think it'd be conducive to work in that type of environment if there wasn't some sort of, uh, I'm not going to say family because you still have to be kind of obviously accountable and professional, but you, if you're all kind of on the same wavelength, staying positive and kind of just being sociable and just doing your job, like it's very, it makes the job that much um, easier and more, the job can be fun and it was fun and and definitely kind of as to that. But I mean, I would never say like fist bumps and hot, like stuff like that. But you could tell that obviously he is respected and i mean all the power tool. Here's the thing dude, you kind of hinted about it. Obviously, I couldn't be political and I tend to be very down a lot more conservative. And so once I left, people are like, oh, how was he? What'd you think? And I go, I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you. I didn't agree with 95% of his politics or whatever, but there was never a hesitation in my mind where if it came down to it, I would honorably take a bullet for that man or his family or anyone under that administration. I would do it for the same president now and I would have done it for any other president. And so for me, there's that thing where it's like, this is my duty. I don't care. Hey, as long as you're good to, I mean, we might disagree or whatever, you might, uh, whatever, but, My job here is to do what I'm going to do to make sure you live and nothing happens to you. And so that's that's one of those things where my duty to serve obviously supersedes any type of feelings or emotions I would have towards that person.
0: I think that's a concept that people are having a harder and harder time um, wrapping their brain around is the selflessness of what you're saying. Is, is your willingness as, a, as a, a family man, as an educated, successful person that, and that is literally what America is supposed to be, is I support your right to say everything I hate and I can disagree with you 100% and that's exactly what we're supposed to do in this country and be able to do it and to be able to put all of your personal stuff aside to i mean it's it is the leader of the free world but at the end of the day he's just a man and for you to be willing to sacrifice your own life to protect another man these are the same stories that i hear about when we talk about military personnel and veterans on the podcast. I right. mean, I talked about it a lot in the last episode with my producer, Mike, when we talked about going to Afghanistan. I knew from the minute I got off the plane in Baghdad or Kabul, that the guys I would been—I embed was embedded with would have taken a bullet for me without even thinking twice about it. I think a lot of people that don't do the kind of work that you do have a really hard time imagining making that choice themselves, except for their own children or maybe their spouse. Were no, you always I, like that? Or is that something that really comes through in the training?
2: Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll step back here. So you kind of just talked about like, obviously if you're a family, if you're a mother or father, father, you, you have that kind of that instinct to protect your kids, your whatever, each other. And so the fact that we can have people to do that, I think that's great. And it, someone that doesn't think outside their own family or friends or whatever, I can't, we can't fault them for that. But like you did say, there is a duty to help serve each other in whatever way we can. I've always been someone that's, I've always, I mean, you grew up playing cops and robbers, or I was, I mean, I watched Red Dawn one time, and all of a sudden I was shooting every non-American military person i could think of and so for me i've always been kind of like that like very like i want to i want to I serve someone i'm not good with i mean i i did great in college and school and stuff but i couldn't serve someone as a doctor i didn't like school that much for another six eight years i wasn't i didn't want to serve people in that aspect so i was always kind of like how can i serve others in a job that where there is value in what i do and that and that i could kind of just I can have fun doing what I do, but I can – the idea of laying down your life for someone, it's a very kind of – it's a very thing to easy to talk about until you've kind of been in that position where someone has drawn a gun on you or a knife or you've been in a situation where, man, this can break really bad and how do I – how do you mitigate the situation? And so in the private sector, whether it's with um, – because I did the stuff with nickelback then obviously shine down now and you're kind of it's like at what point like these people here yes I cho- I could choose to be here at whatever my company like I, I'm not being forced at gunpoint. I could I could have been like hey I don't want the job this isn't like the government where you have to do that and so for me it's like if I'm able to work with good people and they don't have to be perfect flawed is perfect to me and so if I can still do what i love whether security and protection but also feel like who i'm doing it for and with is receptive of that hey this is for me yeah it's it's i mean i i don't want to go off on a tangent but i get it's very personal to me um that people trust me with their lives or their kids or their wives or their husbands um in a world right now that obviously especially entertainment industry with active shooters and bombs and stuff like that. It just, it's, it, it is humbling for me. And it, I do have to take a couple of minutes every day when I wake up and just be like, man, this is like, it, this could be Las Vegas today. This could be Manchester. This could be the Boston or marathon bombing. This is so I'm like, it's, it's very humbling that I'm in, a, in, a, I'm in the position I am to, to potentially get hurt or lose my life protecting someone.
0: There aren't that many examples. Obviously, there's more examples now because technology has made it so there's just cameras recording everything all the time. But when you look at images of the uh, Reagan assassination attempt and you see how the Secret Service moved in those few frames to protect the president or that famous Boston Magazine cover of the Boston police officers, you know, mere seconds after the bomb started going off at the marathon finish line. I, I think it, you know, when you watch footage like that, the human instinct is obviously to run away and, and to hide, take cover, get, get away from the danger. And there's a certain instinct as a person that you would have to overcome because, I mean, this is evolutionary instinct that you're trying to fight in order to be successful at doing the job that you do every day. Right. It's like
2: like you said best, like these men and women, that, especially the Boston uh, Marathon bombing, they're running into a situation. They have, don't know what's going on. And then in the back of their minds, they still have their families or kids back home. That part, I mean, part of me would be like, you hear that first explosion. You're like, man, I need to get away from here. I need to call home. But that 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 minute that nod, kind of like hesitation, where they just jump in there and start pulling bodies out and casing the place and preserving the scene, it's like it's very, it's 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 incredible. It's fascinating, and I don't know if there's a really way of trading that per se in someone, um, but it it is something I think I, I like one of the scenes in the movie The First Avenger, Captain America. I'm a comic book guy. When he's before he becomes like the super soldier, there's that scene where Tommy Lee Jones's character throws that grenade on the ground, and you would think all these big stronger guys, whatever, would jump on it. It was this kind of scrawny guy, um, Chris Evans character, that jumped on it, to, even though it was fake, just risk throw his life on the line. It's, I, that that type of stuff right there, while it is Hollywood and it can be considered somewhat hokey, there is that there are those people that I kind of gravitate towards, and I want to. Work with that. Hey, no matter what happens, we're gonna get whoever we're we're doing home safe. But if the shit hits the fan, we are we gotta we gotta get ready. There's there's something to
0: that. Well, Kyle Carpenter, who was a Marine and not the biggest, most physically overwhelming guy, literally jumped on a grenade and earned the Medal of Honor doing just that. And it for someone that has been on my side of things, meaning has been the person that's been the one being protected. Um, all of the work that I do with veterans, especially, I mean, I did a lot of it before I went to Iraq in 2006, but obviously those trips changed my life. And so I feel like the work that I do since I got home from Iraq and obviously from Afghanistan as well. It's really hard to explain for someone like me what it feels like to be protected by someone like you knowing what you're willing to give up to protect someone like me and I think re- whether it's protecting the president or protecting Brent and Zach who you were from shinedown who you were just with over the weekend like, it's incredibly overwhelming and humbling and you almost as the person being protected don't feel worthy of the sacrifice you don't necessarily have to make because obviously every day you come home from work you're fine but just the notion that someone would do that for you is emotionally overwhelming i guess would be the only way I could describe yeah, it. Yeah, it. it is.
2: And for me, it's like, obviously, if, no matter what band you're with, like, obviously, you get to know them and you're there for a job. But there, I always, in the back of my mind, say we go to the mall the day off, and it's like me and Zach or me, Barry and Eric, and we're just kind of walking about. In the back of my mind, I'm like, well, man, imagine if a gun came through here or an explosion came off. And the, the band guys don't have to be with me. I can be with a couple of crew guys. And I'm like, in the back of my mind, I'm like, man, if something happens right here, how am I going to help someone I don't know? Or probably the irony of all this is the same person that's in a show calling me an asshole or throwing a beer, giving me a finger because I'm telling them to sit down or don't be rowdy or stop spitting at a child. is the same person I would help drag out of a crime scene or I'd make sure they didn't get hurt. And so it's one of those things where you're kind of like, and I'll use this as an example with the kind of the protesting going on right now, with like you know, this, the whole defund the police movement. That kind of was a couple of, or whatever. The first people, those people that are protesting or gonna whatever, that hey, we're gonna meet the Boston Common at two p.m. and we're gonna protest the police. The first people they go to to make sure they're permit and they're safe, they they're calling the police. And it's kind of comical because, like, you're trying to defund the same people that you need to feel safe at your bullshit rally. And so for me, it's like one of those things where you kind of have to deal with these people, these different personalities, yet I'm not going to change how I'm going to react or what my actions are going to be. You can call me all the names of the book, but when the shit hits the fan, you're the first person you're going to call. I'm going to be the first person that person reaches out to for help. And there is something to that. And I take pride in that, but it's just one of those things where I wish more people, kind of. You said, I mean, you, we, we talked about it earlier, just being the selfless and, and I know you just got married. Um, your husband's a veteran and currently serving, and he comes home from serving, whatever. I guarantee the first time, say there's an active shooter or a situation, his first duty is yes to protect you, but he's going to stop whatever's happening. And, And so it just, I wish more people could kind of appreciate those type of men and women that are able to, hey, put differences aside and just serve and help others.
0: Well, one of the things that, um, you know, that I find really interesting is, like you said, you know, the security guys are always the bad guys. And a couple episodes ago, like I was telling you, Will Hunt and Troy McClawhorn from Evanescence were on the podcast. And I said, what was the last show you guys played? And the last show they played was a show that they didn't play because it was that big Mexico City festival that ended in riots. And their their head of security was the head of security for Limp Bizkit during the Woodstock 99 riots. And he's the one that recognized that all the barricading for the massive crowd wasn't installed correctly. And he knew that if they went on and then Slipknot followed them, that the 80,000 people would have broken through those barricades and people would have died. And the irony yeah. of this whole story is that because they canceled the rest of the show for the security, the greater well being of the crowd. The crowd then rioted and burned the band's gear. <laughs> it's like Yeah, what? I remember
2: I think it was <laughs> we blabberma- did this for you. I think it was I think it was, <laughs> was blabbermouth because I was on tour with um Shy Down and that thing came through blabbermouth. So we look at these clips and we're like, dude, is that Will Hunt's drum set being carried into the crowd? And you're right, their security guy, um <laughs> Richie a great guy. <laughs> Um, love him, and it's it's true. You're in that position to make the call, and it's like not only does he have to re- be responsible for the band, the crew, local production, the local people working, but the crowd is still your number one, where the biggest issues are going to be. And the fact you're able to make see that those barricades weren't latched out or bolted correctly, that's that's a testament to himself, his training, and the hey again first people to be shit on and the first people to be called. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, very fascinating that. Yeah. That will hunt stuff was insane that I, man, I still watch that probably every couple of weeks. Cause I'm like, this really happened in the 21st century.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, So you you get introduced to the CEO of Silver Spear Security and you make the life decision to leave the Secret Service and get into the private sector. How is it working in the private sector different than working security at a government agency? Is it completely different or are there a lot of similarities?
2: It's, there's, a, there's probably like 85% similar. Um, obviously, the politics are different, but the politics like the Republican, Democrat, or whatever, the, the government side of it, now you have to deal with the local promoter, the national promoter, Live Nation, AEG, whoever, the local radio rep, the local radio station. And you, some of these, the craziest stuff, like most ridiculous fights and arguments I've seen, or when you do these festivals, and you have like, you would know, um, with these radio, how they do like the cross promotion, stuff like that. Like the territorial <laughs> these people have. You're like, man, you're about to be a brawl in the in the press area in front of all these bands because this radio guy took five minutes longer. And so there's those, there's those politics. Um, but the trade doesn't change. You still serve a purpose. You still have to do your job. Um, I guess out in the private sector, I'm more of my own boss now. Um, in that sense, but with before COVID, I have cruises and festivals going all over where I can have two hundred people working all throughout the country on a given day, and you're still responsible for their actions as well. And so it's it's it is very fascinating. Again, I I love it. Um, it's it's a very rewarding experience, especially if you can work with a great crew and. Um, like promoters and obviously radio personalities like yourself or Lou Rizzo and all these people where you're kind of like, um, like they become family. And so it's it, it's very fun. I mean, training doesn't stop. We have I'm actually, or a company's in the process of opening a training school in Florida, in California, where we'll be doing basic guard car classes all the way up through like bodyguard type stuff that I would uh, be able to teach. And so the trade's always there. Um, When COVID hit a couple months ago, I got my COVID compliance um, officer certification to act as a um, compliance officer for anything from movie sets to high production to tours where um, you kind of have to have that kind of COVID stuff in place now. And so it all goes back to what we said before. Always kind of stay ahead of the curve. Always get um, that training and education. Um, I've done a couple of workplace violence stuff. Um, through COVID, obviously some places got kind of scary with terminations and threats being made. So there's there's always that type of stuff where you're kind of always learning and hey, what could I have done better? Uh, but yes, yeah, it's it's, it's uh, I would say like eighty five percent probably similar.
0: You just were recently out doing some live shows, which are a rarity in the time of COVID, with um, Brent and Zach with their side project, not really a side project, but Smith and Myers, which is right. their acoustic project that they've both talked about here on the podcast. And so you have been in a unique position where you have been behind the scenes at these quote unquote new drive-in concerts. Explain to me the difference because I have not been to one yet. Explain to me the difference between these drive-in shows and what that is like from the artist's perspective and what regular concerts that we all know and love were like. Because this is such a weird thing for me to wrap my brain around.
2: It is very weird. So we recently um, did a show in Philly, Scranton, PA and Butler, PA, because uh, P- Pennsylvania is one of the only states that's actively really pushing these. I know like Massachusetts other states are starting to do it, but these are this state, Pennsylvania has been on fire with this stuff in a good way. Um, and so Pennsylvania, Live Nation show, like eight, seven, 800 cars. You got the two ball. They got the, uh, the stadiums right there, the, the backdrop of the parking lot. But the one thing that felt weird is that for that show, there was no PA. It was just an FM transition radio. Uh, and so you could turn your car radios on or to hear the radio, but you couldn't really hear anything if, as I'm walking around like the barricade or check out our merch guy or just check out front of, stuff like that. And so, yeah, we had like side um, fills just to, for their guests to hear. But it was very like, here are these guys playing and singing. It doesn't, it didn't, it didn't sound like they were because obviously you couldn't hear it. People were in the Hawks and Horns. I think Philly's more kind of reserved because they're kind of like phase one. We get to Scranton and Butler and I, I it's, it felt like a rock show, obviously, in the cars, but there were beer cars going between there. Now, they, one of the things you have to be cognizant of now is like drinking responsibly, having a DD. And so all these promoters have like either the cop making sure there's a DD or that type of stuff for safety. But, I mean, it was rowdy. People have their chairs out. They're cranking tunes in the parking lot. There's a full PA now. And... It's just great. People have like these glow the dark sides and glow sticks. I think it's granted they played this huge like alien type of like beach toy thing that after the show, our, the Zach and Brent signed. Um, it was just great. People drinking margaritas, screaming at the cars. It's a little colder, a little bit different, but it was cool just to see that kind of humid aspect of. Now you couldn't really hug people, and you might see someone you know or whatever. You're like, oh, I don't want to there's that fear too of like kind of like whatever press is a little bit different shoot the shows because there is this feeling of, of where people could be like, well, why is people are so close? Or where's the social distancing and backstage people are in face masks. Now we get temperature checked once we come on site, obviously, um, yeah, depending on the jurisdiction of the town or city or whatever, they will do temperature checks or that type of stuff. But once you're backstage, it's kind of like if you come to a, you if you would come to a show, we have a dressing room. We have either like the tour bus outside. Like you could have hung out with us. Like we're not one of those. Um, yeah, we value social distancing and stuff like that. But we there still has to be this human aspect of. Um, going to a show, and so I mean, there's been bad guests. Um, it's a little less chaotic, obviously. Not everyone kind of hunker down or a room together, talk in hot air and stuff. But it definitely is. It's something that I think uh, will probably go on for a couple more months, obviously. But uh, it's a different challenge. I mean, it's it's one of those things where you're you you have to deal with this health thing is. It's, it's uh, very fascinating. I know we kind of talked about it off air, but it's a very, the constant changes and regulations that are changing on the daily that you have to kind of mitigate, especially when we come to these shows.
0: One of, the, one of the, from a security perspective, one of the differences is that when we come to concerts, right, we go through the metal detectors, we get the pat down, they go through our purses, all of that kind of stuff. Um, obviously, you know, depending on the artist and depending on your familiarity with the artist, there might be added security when you go backstage and get in the vicinity of the artist. But now you're in a position where you've got eight hundred to a thousand automobiles filled with flammable liquids and electronics and all of this. you've got trunks and under vehicles. and how do you manage that? To me, that seems Whoa. almost more dangerous.
2: Yeah, it's it all like it was funny when I first got when I first announced the Philly show. It was one of the first ones. Um, I think the Struts had done that show, and maybe AJR and that comedian Bert Kreischer. Uh, but this is one, it was one of the first shows, proper like big shows like that. And my first thought was like, well, we have a lot of VVIDs right here. Where um, these are all potential bombs. And obviously, you would know through your husband and the military dealing with that type of stuff. It's, that's a real threat that happens literally every day. happened in Sweden a couple of years ago, where an actual car rammed through, or a truck rammed through everyone. But who's to say these cars, some guy gets drunk and starts plowing people over in a parking lot. Now, you can, as part of the advance, implement trunk checks. Um, there's no grilling, per se. So they're checking for propane tanks. Um, anything like that. like if it looks weird, like if a guy pulls in what looks like f- with like fertilizer, or a lot of or there's a weird smell or odor coming from the car, you're gonna get a secondary search um, just based on God forbid, there is an actual leak that you didn't know about. Um, but it's a very it's a very real threat that I think uh, obviously you have to be worried about because like you said, you if you're not checking these trucks, you could pull anything out of that truck. Molotov and all that stuff. And you're just, it's its definitely, it's very, at first it's was kind of weird. Now I'm kind of like, okay, it's, it's just a car. Like I, I can process my, myself. As long as they're doing the searches at the front and whatever, um, it's okay. And now there's the distance between the stage and barricade now is probably 20, 30 feet. And then another 60, 70 feet between the next closest car um, based on the layout. But it is very, we've three shows. The staff has been great. The law enforcement has been great on site helping. There's been really no issues. And so it's kind of cool, that aspect of it. But it, it can be scary.
0: You're such a security expert in all of the different phases of your career. And obviously working with Silver Spear now, just doing kind of touring and personal security. You guys have had to kind of move as a security company because of coronavirus as well and because of how strange and dangerous the country and the world is right now what are some of the other um specialties that you guys do besides the personal like rock star and vip right. security and tour security and stuff
2: and so we always every year we kind of start with like i mean it's cliche but like just this pie. And so the first year we come out, it had like a four slice pie, but now we're to the point where you're looking at eight, 10 slices where COVID might affect the touring, the festival or the cruise part of it. But I've never been more busy with a state security, especially in California with some of our high profile clients with the rides, and the protesting where that's been off the chain. Now you're, now we're talking about, um, we're doing stuff now. We're doing like these. We're starting a training academy now in Florida, where we didn't have that last year. Now we're starting to do that, and this just this basically just helped exploit that process because there's such a there's such a need for proper security now that we're able to kind of work on that pie. And so if I'm not touring, which I've started to now again, there are other aspects of the security industry where you're kind of like, okay, I can work on this or the further education or I've been doing a bunch of these podcast things on our own talking to um, everyone from human trafficking experts to martial artists to victims of domestic abuse and how they deal with that. So there's always this idea of just staying busy, staying alert and just kind of kind of navigate what slice of pie you're kind of on. Um, but yeah, state security is one of those things we've kind of always done, but it kind of really got, um, really crazy recently, obviously with everything going on. Um, but yeah, anytime you see something on the news where you're kind of like, um, I know a couple months ago, in, I think there's Minnesota, Missouri, that couple that had the gun on the lawn when the people broke through their property, whatever. And one, of, one as soon as I saw that, I'm like, oh, here come the calls because you're gonna have ultra rich people that don't obviously have the, they have the right to own a firearm, but they're not properly trained. And now it's cheaper for them Why you not you just hire proper security to watch your estate. And so sure enough, all that, those calls came in. Um, there's, yeah, there's been a lot of different, uh, it, it's, the whole thing is very fascinating. And it, again, I can't stress it enough that just if you, whatever field you're doing, you just kind of branch out and just kind of make, make yourself better at what you do by utilizing different stuff around you. And, uh, Unfortunately, COVID hit, and you kind of had to do that, but who's to say that some part of me is kind of like, now, obviously, I'm not glad it happened. I'd I'd rather go back to December when nothing was even talked about this, but it kind of puts stuff in perspective that, hey, maybe we weren't as strong as we were, and if we all could kind of step back, no matter what your job is, and really strengthen what you do, I think that is maybe one of the, probably the only benefit from this.
0: I know that laws, when it comes to firearms and and stand your ground, they change for every state and sometimes counties within states, but you and I, you know, born and raised in Massachusetts, you've been hunkered down for the most part during the coronavirus here. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of just quote unquote regular people people that aren't on the fringes of either side whether it be left or right politically people that are just trying to figure out if they're laid off how they're going to pay the mortgage people that have little kids that they're trying to keep them safe and healthy and figure out how to get them to and from school you seem and are uh, a fantastic resource for a regular person that just might be a little bit more worried than normal about protecting their family or making sure they're making the right choices. And when it comes to just locally, I mean, you see that couple that all of a sudden now is on TV with their guns out right. and there. I mean, nobody wants to be that person, but at the same time, they wanna protect their family. You know, do you have any advice for people that are just maybe wanting to be a little bit more protected? And I, I'm not talking firearms, but just right, right. in an overall security way,
2: Man, what that's the probably, average
0: person could do.
2: That's probably one of the best questions that I've gotten throughout this whole thing. That's awesome. Um, I, For myself personally, I mean, we've gotten messages from people or friends of friends like, hey, I have this, like, I I live in this city so-and-so city. there's a protest coming. I'm on the ground floor, my door's on the street, my windows are glass. Is there something I could do to make yourself or make myself safe feel safer? the kids are home. And my first thought is well man God, I'm like, damn it, why do they gotta deal with this? But and I'm like, okay, well, here's something you can do to barricade your door, put this tapered glass on your uh, the sticker type stuff on your window glass so where if it breaks, it's not going everywhere, kind of windshield spirals out. Um, lock your door this way. Make sure you have a clear exit. There's a, there, it, If you want to learn something, you can get out on the online or whatever and just get that knowledge. But the idea, I think we're something where I think law enforcement or um, people that are in my position where there is a, again, it goes back to what I said, there's a duty to kind of serve. And if someone reaches out where they're kind of like, hey, I don't know if I interpret this type of gun law. Like, can you define self-defense versus not self-defense in my state? And there's, I think there should be a better way for people to kind of reach out and get those resources. Um, but there is – yeah, it's one of those things where I'm all for – again, if there's a question that has to be answered or asked, do it and – Kind of, there's no. We're living in a world now; it's always changing, like we said. And there's no dumb question. And so let's kind of work together. Where, hey, you don't. You might have an issue, like you think that my friend is um, Philly that had that um, concern, or whatever it is. You're kind of like, what can I do to kind of help these people that might have questions? Or it's not necessarily a money thing. There's a lot of stuff you could do, um, where you're kind of just like make yourself more better off or have your family more secured. Um but yeah, I mean obviously training, if you do have a firearm, just because I, I will die defending the, the right to bear arms, but on that same side of the coin, just because you have the right to own a gun doesn't mean you should all be entitled you should actually actually own the gun. Now if you're gonna buy a gun just because you can, then you've already you're that's just stupid. You should do the proper training you should do the proper scenario-based articulation drills where you're kind of like, hey, protesters break down my community gate and I've been drinking all day, should I be grabbing my gun? Or whatever it is, you kind of, uh, you just have to, if you do own a gun or even a knife, or if you have to draw that firearm out or whatever, you have to be ready to deal with the consequences of actually pulling the trigger. Because once you transition pulling out your gun, you aren't. You can't transition next. You're not. There's nothing you can do after. So you better get ready to pull that trigger. And a lot of times, I think that's where people get in trouble because they don't know. They know they can own the gun. They just don't know how to they they control the gun. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's all. It is like you said. It's very scary. And and then education is out there. I'll do what I can to help others. Um, and not to kind of change subjects, but obviously with a lot of these events recently with like law enforcement. One of the ideas I had in Florida and California is to work with um, the local law enforcement and some community leaders where, let's run through some drills, how to deal with, hey, I get pulled over. And I don't care if you're black, white, gay, purple, forearms. like this is just basic. If you get pulled over by a cop, this is what you should do and what you can't do. Hear it from the cop, and hear it from someone else on the outside kind of like no this is right like bring a lawyer in how you deal with a protest what rights you have as if you want to hold your presidential side at the rotary can you block traffic can you not block traffic like stuff like that where you should be kind of if we all kind of work together i do think a lot of these situations especially these shootings that i mean i again i wasn't there i don't know what i I never want to quarterback that stuff because that's a whole different um, animal. But moving forward, I think it would be beneficial for families and town people. Hey, if you want to take this free class put on by the the police, where we're going to talk about the local rules for our county. If you do want, to, if you are in Florida, you've got these standard ground laws. Let's go over this with a classroom. Let's talk about. Um, etiquette, let's talk about rules of the law, stuff like that where you're kind of like, man, this is this could save a life and this could ultimately change a life too.
0: Well, that's the thing, you know, when you talk about exercising any rights, a right is is a right, but there's responsibility that comes with exercising that right. And I think a lot of us as Americans, the difficulty with being an American is that democracy or a republic requires an active role and active participation. And, you know, I don't understand what it's like to be African-American in the United States. Right. However, I've had a lot of really interesting conversations with guy friends, especially really type A men before coronavirus, when the Me Too movement was happening, because It's impossible for a man to understand, maybe until he has a daughter or a spouse or something where it's incredibly hard to look at the world through a woman's eyes and to be able to empathize and kind of understand what the world is for her and how intimidating and dangerous it can be. And that was one of the other questions that I wanted to ask you is, when the world starts to open up again, and obviously with it locked down, the rates of domestic violence have skyrocketed because there are women that are stuck in these homes with their abusers. But as the world starts opening up again, women look at the world and interact with the world very differently and do a lot of things like my guy friends think and never thought about it that it was weird that when I park in a parking lot I park under one of the lights that I always check the back seat before I get in that when I get into the car the first thing I do is lock the door so many guys I know they don't even think about that stuff yet so many women have just grown up doing those exercises because they've been taught to be afraid because of the statistics being on the side of fear. Can you talk right. about that stuff too?
2: Yeah, it's one of the, um, because one of the classes we're going to do is actually going to be a for women only where it's kind of like these are scenarios we'll, we'll have female instructors. So you kind of have that, um, connection there, but what could, as a, yeah, it is fascinating too, because you talk about how these men, have this, I don't know if it's this arrogance I ha- we have, or oh, I don't, I mean, for me, I, I'm aware of it, but I, a ton of my friends are like, why would you, why do you carry a flashlight on you, John? You, or why do you, um, why do you walk that way? Or why do you sit in that location of the restaurant to your back against a hard position, out looking out the window? Or why do you park, like you said, under a street light? It's like, it's all about being aware. That's some of the stuff where, um, Even little things where if you're a female with, uh, you're carrying your purse, just the way you hold the purse, what do you have in your purse that could be beneficial to you besides your car keys if you have to strike someone or carry a flashlight? I've been places where you leave a bar at night and you see these kind of girls, and obviously sometimes guys, stumbling to cars or stumbling to their, their apartments and completely unaware of... That there's some guy following behind them, or I'm looking at it, like, man, this is a bad guy. It could be someone else who else is walking home, and so there's like this, there's like this thing where you kind of have to, again, it's all education and kind of just be making yourself more aware of what the surroundings are. But there is the fact that you are you know to park under a streetlight is sets you so far ahead of the curve in terms of. Um, other people that aren't, you're actually helping stop an issue come up that could happen. If you're in a dark parking garage on the third floor in some bullshit city where you know there's no cameras and there's no light and you're fumbling for your car keys, if I'm a bad guy, you are, you're the easiest victim I can come across. And so it's, it's, it is very, it's vital that people kind of should kind of take those classes or read up on it or kind of just, Work on that stuff because a lot of times you'll have a guy that's like, "Oh, I can fix a car tire." Well, did you t- 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 did you teach your girlfriend or your wife or your significant other how to change the car tire? Or there's stuff like that where if you're in a couple or you have siblings, where you can kind of run those drills together. And just any situation you could think of has happened; it will happen again. And that's the only way to kind of combat that is repetition.
0: Do you agree with the idea that? you that that like you said criminals look for the easy victim and so if you can make it a little bit harder for them to victimize you you have then become safer because they're 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 looking for the weakling in the herd right that's statistically i'm not talking about someone that's willing to put in the work to try and say assassinate a president that's a whole other level But someone that's trying to abduct a child or attack a woman that they are looking for an unaware, unprepared, easy prey. They're not looking for the struggle.
2: Right. So I, I like it to, if you're at a festival and I'm looking to jump the barricade or um, jump on stage or do something to the artist or whatever, I'm looking for all the weak parts of that barricade security is not paying attention they're flirting with someone or they're dancing or they're on their cell phone and so whatever you can do to kind of harden what like where you are like whatever you're what's around you the you should just you should do it and say if you're walking to your car at night and just make it look like you're talking on your phone just put on your camera so it looks like it haven't faced you or it looks like you're facetiming someone so that already kind of gets someone thinking well, shit, there's another witness if I do something here could see me or they don't need to know you're not really FaceTiming someone. It's just the illusion of making yourself more secure. And so always check the backseat of your car. Always check uh, under the car if you can, especially if you have a flashlight. Um, and when it comes to – we've done this before at leaving a show where if we're in a runner van, whoever I'm with, You'll have fans that kind of camp out backstage with knowing the buses are still there, that we're kind of taking off, and they'll kind of follow us. And so you're kind of watching, like, all right, we're not pull, we're going to pull into this hotel. As soon as they park, we're pulling back out. Or, and if you're a female or a guy, you got this weird person that's followed you home from a bar, don't ever pull straight into your driveway. Don't go home the way you usually do. Go home a safe way, but don't lead these people to see where you live or driving to a police station or a fire station. There's just stuff like that where, again, you can be, you can secure yourself better and you won't have to rely on others um, to kind of help out in those situations.
0: And it's not paranoia. It's acknowledgement. This is because... I've been, you know, quote, unquote, a zombie prepper for years. My prepping skills with what I had stockpiled in the house were right on with the coronavirus. I want to pat myself on the back a little bit that my prepping skills were put to the test and and I did okay. But it's not paranoia. It's that as good of the world, like I I want to be an optimist. I want to believe that there's good in everyone. But at the same time you have to acknowledge that the boogeyman does exist. It may not be as prevalent as some people are trying to scare you into believing, but you at least have to acknowledge that there are bad people in the world that just want to do bad things to people because that's what they do.
2: Well, that's what they're good at. It's one of those things where, uh, laws are meant to keep the good people, keep people, good people, honest. Bad guys. You could take every firearm away from every law-abiding citizen. The only people that'll be owning guns at the time will be the bad guys. They don't care about laws, and you just have to do what you can to be ready for that. Now, that doesn't mean everyone own a gun. Like if you can own a gun and get the training and carry it, I'm all for it. But the bad guy or girl, they don't, they don't stop, and. Whether it was a virus you can't physically see, you still have to. You, can, you We now, as a, as a as a group of people, have to plan for that new bad guy that could decimate an entire world, industries. But you also have to deal with the sex offenders. You got to deal with that guy that might pick up your kid because he's a trafficker, or you got to deal with that armed gunman or that drunk guy at the bar that's talking shit to your son or your daughter or your girlfriend. And there's just I definitely, with the lack of humanity, and empathy right now in the world, it, it feels like to me that the bad guy is just licking his lips right now. Go, man! These people, all these good people, are fighting each other. We can still be bad guys. Let them fight. And we'll do our thing. It's it's very kind of disheartening. Uh, but I think if we take one step at a time, we can kind of just kind of uh, kind of help each other. I guess.
0: And we all need an escape from that. So for someone like you that touring, a lot of the things that people listen to this podcast do as their escape, going to concerts, listening to music, that's all kind of tied into your employment. So for you, like, you know, I ride my motorcycle and skydive. What is it that you do to just turn your brain off and allow yourself to just find peace and serenity in your own private life?
2: Uh, one of the things is actually gardening. When I got home yesterday from Manchester Airport, the first thing I did, because I knew we had a frost here a couple days ago, I was like, oh my God, Like, I hope the peppers aren't dead yet or the tomato. So I'm out there when I get home last night, kind of <laughs> making sure nothing happens to my tomato plants. So I- I've always liked gardening or rose bushes or lilacs. It's very just, I'm outside the sun. Yard work, cutting grass, I love. Um, I also love writing. Uh, different stuff. I'm always kind of learning. I, I'll, I'll pick a subject matter and like focus on that for like three weeks. So a couple weeks ago, it was just like martial arts and how different martial arts can help me as a security person. Now I'm in the middle of learning about different conservation and doing this other crazy stuff. And So I'm always kind of having that little short-term type of thing to kind of take my mind off what I do. Um, I love comic books. I actually collect um, – really high-end, like, Funko Pops that are rare to find. So I, I always have that type of – like, I'm very – I used to watch – it. I mean, when I'm on tour, I'll go to the movies all the time. I know me, Zach, and Kent, and we'll, we'll crush movies. But when I'm home, I tend to just kind of disengage from the media, the the idea of, like, watching TV. Um, even sports now, I'm just like, eh. Um, but if i am able to just go outside and do something that's not security related, which for me is gardening or cutting grass, like that's probably my number one um, thing. I obviously, my, um,
0: It's amazing how camera, therapeutic so. having a vegetable garden is, isn't it?
2: It's weird. Cause it's like, but here's the thing too. Like, it's like I'm doing security for something that's, it's kind of a weird, I feel like I'm protecting these vegetables and plants where like I take care of them, like I don't have kids, (laughs) but I'm like, so I got a bunch of blueberry bushes this year and raspberry and um, blackberry bushes that I'm pruning whenever I can. I'm always making sure they got the manure, the fertilizer, the right nitrous levels, the soil. And so for me, it's like, now I think about it, like I'm doing like this weird mental thing where I'm like doing security for these plants. So it's, but it's, 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 it's it's very weird and therapeutic for me. And I love it.
0: I never thought of it that way, but it's totally true.
2: Right. I'm just like, man, okay, well, it's going to be, it's going to be sunny this week. It's going to be a frost. So I got to advance a couple of buckets or put plastic sheets on you. I'm like, dude, what am I doing? Like, God, I'm going to kill all (laughs) these plants now. I'm so pissed (laughs) off. So I'm just like, it's very, it is, uh, yeah, that, that's, uh, That's my thing. Guarding, I think that's my thing. And,
0: you know, I know that you've had a lot of extra time on your hands because of the coronavirus. And, uh, you know, everyone has had their own personal coronavirus struggles with how the world was shut down. But you haven't been able to see your girlfriend because she's in Canada and the borders closed. And this is kind of a new thing for Americans to deal with is not being able to freely move about the world the way that we are used to doing. You get a passport, you can go wherever you want. And so, you know, just having that border be closed, bands are having a hard time getting members together to write music or do these concerts because they're scattered around the world and can't legally get together. And for you, the person you love is in Canada and you can't get there.
2: Right? Yeah, it's one of those things where, we're first happy. like, well, what's, I, last time I've seen her, was in uh, February. And it's one of those things where like, well, if I'm always touring, like we make it, it's one of those things where, she's traveling with gymnastics all over the world, I'm doing my thing. Um, so whenever we can beat up, we beat up like, but one of those things where, when, when my world kind of changed, like that security world part of it with traveling and kind of doing that stuff, it it totally was kind of like a mental thing where it's like now I can't even see her because of what you just said. And she's able always been able to come down to USA, um, I think since after, a little bit after March, but it's not reciprocated back to uh, for us to go up into Canada. Uh, but the problem is, she can't come down here, because you still have to quarantine for, for the 14 days, she still has to work. So if you we've, if she has four or five days off not doing anything, for me mentally, I'm just like, man, this, this, this is so dumb, because I can't spend those four or five days with her when I could have. But if I went up there, I would have to get a work visa, which is doable, but again, I can't quarantine, and now I'm back down here working, which is a great problem to have. It's just one of those things where, the fourteen days, you're just like that's a long time not to be with that person, but to be told you can't do anything unless you go with at least the fourteen. And for me, spending an hour with my girlfriend would be would be awesome. And it's one of those things where mentally you're kind of like, oh god. So, but it's uh, it's been ups and downs in that part of it. Not nothing bad, but like the the mental kind of the ebb and flow of maintaining a healthy relationship um, with it. Obviously we always joke that it could be worse. Like I, God bless the men and women that serve this country. You could have a spouse overseas right now or vice versa. I do. You could have a kid in the hospital um, fighting cancer and and I'm blessed with that. So it's one of those things where you kind of, I try not to act selfish. I'm I'm not a very, I'm not a selfish person at all. But part of me is like, I, this one fleeting minute, I'm always just like, I I deserve to be selfish it's to see her. But again, it could be worse. And you have to deal with something crazy right now through a pandemic that uh, I have no idea how you're doing it, but I know you're strong and it's badass that you're doing it's, that. It's,
0: it's given me a totally different perspective on the spouses of the people that I was embedded with overseas in in how difficult it is and and all of the veterans and military members that i know they always talk about how it is harder because life at home for the spouse doesn't stop it's just that you lose that other person that can be there to help and so it really does i mean i don't know how people do it with small kids or um you know being a single parent and i have the utmost respect for military spouses that have been able to endure deployment after deployment and to be able to maintain a career and a home and children because you know like my husband's going to be gone for a year and i'm going through one of the hardest things for me which is losing my career in one respect and starting a company and trying to do it when the industry i work in is literally bleeding from the gut and yet, you know what? There's way more people that have it worse than me. And so I'm not throwing a pity party for myself, just like the way you're not. It's like, we just have right. to go to work and figure it out.
2: Right. I think for me, I'm, I'm trying to be a, a, a beacon of positivity. I think what you're doing, like you just said, for you to kind of, it's just be one thing if you took this plunge when everything was normal, I guess. But the fact you're doing it through this pandemic, when this, in your, this industry you we're part of is just in shambles. The fact you're doing that is just a testament to yourself and what you, what, how you really, uh, how you want to give back to this industry and be a part of something that's that is great. And the fact that you're doing that now, like I, it's utmost respect. I think it's great, and I think uh, you're definitely onto something too because you mentioned it earlier where if you're dealing interviewing, say like a. Uh, whether it's a Corey Taylor or James Hetfield or Lejon from 7Dust on your on WAF, you are – yeah, you'll have the music questions. You'll have like the – but there, there has to be some sort of corporate issue or there's some stuff you can't talk about that now that you're your own brand, you can kind of ask the questions you might not be able to ask before. And not necessarily to those guys, but some crew people like myself or veterans or – People that have a unique voice that weren't getting heard, you're able now to provide that for them, that's great.
0: It's been really interesting and it's not so much that it was a subject matter restriction, but it was always a time restriction. And it was always, you know, like, oh, okay, well I've got to get all the commercials in and I got to get the music on and I got five minutes. And, you know, and now it's like, I can make all of the decisions, which is amazing. But it's like you get all the credit if it works and all the blame if it doesn't. And you're really kind of laying yourself out there going, well, if it sucks, I can't blame anyone else but me. But if it's great, then I get to take all the credit. So it's a gamble. It's like you're betting on yourself at the roulette table and it's, it's weird making all the decisions when there used to be a team of people brainstorming how things used to go.
2: One of those things where I think myself, I'm kind of fueled by Diffract, detractors or haters where it's kind of like I'm never going to stop being myself or who I represent. So it's one of those things where I think like you, there's there was initially that fear of putting yourself out there to more people outside that the people in the industry were not part of. And I kind of, I, I do think we have a unique voice, in what, especially again, what you're doing. Like I, it's just so important that you are able to, kind of fuel yourself from people that might not like, oh, who's Mrs. Carey, who does she think she is? Well, you know what? Here's the middle finger to you. I'm going to do what I want to do on my terms. I'm doing a kick-ass job with it. And so that's, uh, that's again, that's the haters. I'm always fueled by them, and um, I'm not going to stop anytime soon.
0: One of the things that I've really recognized throughout my life, personally, professionally, whatever, and I've become way more in tune with it as I get older, is recognizing the happy accident um cocktails in the war room turned out to be this happy accident on my facebook page in the middle of the pandemic before i even had a studio i had my cell phone and but looking back at my career one of the happy accidents um was shinedown back in 2004 playing simple man and it happened so long ago and it was really this kind of off the cuff spare of the moment Accident that changed in a lot of ways the trajectory of the band. And to bring it full circle back around to you, all these years later, the band is co headlining with Godsmack at the Xfinity Center. And at the time, I knew it was special. But having the radio station be gone now and being able to look at the connections that I made and moments in my career. You were part of one of the biggest moments in that the guys in Shinedown wanted to commemorate that happy accident 14 or 16 years previously on my show. And you were one of the guys that facilitated the surprise of getting the guys to play simple man for me at the Xfinity center, which made me cry in front of 26,000 people but can you just talk about how that happened from your perspective in the band? Cause I had no freaking idea and you guys surprised the shit out of me. And I want you to know that that moment is one of the moments in my career that I will hold the most dear. You helped to make this incredible memory for me and something that means so much to me that I'm just so grateful for. It's
2: that day was great because obviously, uh the Brett Zach uh Eric and Barry think the world of you obviously you're a vital part of their um career especially this market and just in general and we had just done our vip I believe we had a radio meet and greet that uh um, Lou Rizzo was helping facilitating we you were there you had got I think a sticker or something to be backstage with the Godsback camp well Brett saw that and was like John, can you give her a laminate now again, I already assumed you'd have a le- like because you're you're at that level, and uh, so you guys, you guys were talking, and then we're about an hour out. Um, Brent's like, "Hey, for this part of the set," and I already I, I, I back my mind. I'm like, "This is going to be the night they're going to do this," uh, because I do I knew that moment. Obviously, growing up listening to WAF, I knew how important that for them and yourself. Mm-hmm. You say, hey, just make sure you can – you have eyes on uh, Carrie. Make sure she's by you for Simple Man. um, We're going to do something. We're going to bring her on the the deck for me and Zach. And so I go, yeah, Brent, I'm totally into it. Let me just kind of figure this out because I have to to physically walk you guys up there. I can't really leave the deck. And so I was trying – back. he's like, well, you'll figure it out. I'm like, okay, awesome. (laughs) And so – I have one of those things in my mind. I'm like, I'm like, okay, well, I'm gonna tell her, hey, kind of, because you were standing on stage left, uh, right by those stairs, and it was kind of like a, you could walk down and get up to the front of house area, and uh, I was kind of like, hey, could you just, like, I'll, if you need me, I'll walk you up there, but can you hang out, head up to the, uh, the B stage up by front of house, uh, the guys are gonna do something, and like. I was like, I don't, there's no way for me to not say that without kind of giving what's gonna happen. But whatever, so you were like, oh yeah, no problem. Um, I think I said something, they're gonna do something really cool.
0: Which is out in the middle of the crowd for for anybody that was there that night or trying to imagine. Right, it was
2: insane. And so I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna vaguely tell her to get up there. It's probably thinking of a psycho, like what the hell I'm watching the show on stage. And so we get up there and the best part about this whole thing is they start this. And my hand was on the railing. And I, I had you kind of queued up on the bottom step. And Brett kind of looks at me. I'm like, all okay, right, get it ready. So she they call you up. And you were kind of shaking, like not like this fearful shaking, but almost like, wow, this is like emotional. Well, I'm like, I, I mean, I'm not emotional in like that sense, where I'm like, man, this is so cool for her and these guys to be in this town. The city, kind of. But as you're walking up the step, the part that I I started dying laughing, you dropped your cell phone. And it made, like, this thud where it sounded like it literally fell, like, 20 feet from the air and landed on, like, hard wood. And I grab the phone and hand it to you. And then Zach looks at me and starts laughing. Um, and then they do the spiel where they talk about um, – Simple band and how you had a part of that, their history. And uh, it was for me, it's, it's really cool to see these guys specifically kind of give back to people that had an impact on their life. And that, that I agree with you. That's for me, that's probably a top 10, like honest, truthful reaction from someone that uh, had a meaningful impact on these guys.
0: It was so overwhelming for me and not knowing it was going to happen and i have this giant iphone because i'm always recording into it and taking photos and it was in my pocket and i'm fumbling and it fell and it was so loud and i was like i don't even care and then in the back of my head i'm going what if somebody gets my phone all the guys phone numbers are in there and then you turn around and hand it to me and i just remember looking out at the crowd and feeling the energy of the people singing back to the band And I I had already started crying before they even pulled me up on the stage because for me, I'm just so proud of them and to see where they've gone as a band and how successful they've become and what they've earned through being good people, treating people right, just writing amazing music, putting on great shows. Like they're just one of those bands that deserves to be at the level they're at because they've worked, hard to get there but they've also done right by people to get there as well so i was already crying and then when they brought me up there i was like what do you mean come up there and i just remember like all i could see was people's cell phones looking back at me and i was like oh my god i hope everybody gets this on video and then i'm like this is all what's going through my crazy brain and then i'm like oh my god i'm crying in front of everyone like they're all watching me sob like an idiot right now and then when it was over i thought i was just gonna stay back there and zach was like no come with us and then brent grabbed me and i remember running through the crowd in the dark chasing you and i just i think it was zach that i looked at and i said is this what it's like to be you every day this is really cool and he just started laughing and i just remember that moment as being like that's as close as i'm going to get to being a rock star and it was pretty badass and you helped facilitate it so thank you very much
2: I remember after the show, everyone had had like who was back there, had different videos. It was just kind of cool for like a couple of days. Like you were all over like social media from like different people sharing stories on Facebook or whatever about you being up there for that. It was was really cool and uh, something that I was hard to be a part of.
0: Yeah, it was, I just, I look back at it now, especially now that the station's gone and just look at these moments that I cherish so much. And that's, You know, I look back at those pictures and all the pictures, I'm like, my hands over my face, like in awe of what was going on. And everybody that was there, I had family there that, you know, they were like, did you know that was going to happen? And people sending me pictures. And I go back and look at those pictures and they show up in like my Facebook timeline when the anniversary comes up. And it just, I don't know, it just, it, it, it just is so sweet and wonderful and a, a memory I cherish and, um, you know i'm so glad that that memory happened or that that event happened now as opposed to in the mid to late 90s when nobody would have had a camera and there'd be no video and no evidence that it ever happened except me saying no 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 it really happened at least now i could document it and prove it
2: i actually had a question for you before we go um is there is there a, any regrets you have working at waf that because now that the station is gone, is there anything where you kind of regret not doing on air? I,
0: I don't think I, I have regrets about things that I didn't do. I think the only, I mean, I, I push the limits on a lot of things. You know, I, I. I fought for the things that I wanted to do that I thought were important. I mean, definitely the trips overseas were things that nobody thought would ever get pulled off that I really had to fight to make happen. Um, I never really backed away from hard questions or disagreements with people. But I think looking back at it now, it's like, I wish that I had tried more crazy ideas, even though people think I was filled with crazy ideas all the time. It's like, I almost wish that I did more crazy things because I think we could have gotten away with a lot more, you know, because we always got away with everything that we tried. And so I almost right. regret that we didn't try to get away with more stuff.
2: Right. I was, Cause I was always curious if there was some sort of reason. So I was just kind of curious if that was, if there was any of that type of feeling.
0: No, that, i don't i didn't have any resentment because for the most part aaf always was allowed to operate on the fringe so it was always expected that we take chances and and try to do the impossible and you know but it's like you look back on it and go wow we got away with all that crazy (laughs) stuff i wish we had done 25 percent more crazy stuff you know but i mean you know when you're working for a company and you're dealing with the fcc you always know that you're going to have restrictions and parameters and sometimes Amy Lee talked about this in the podcast sometimes the restrictions make you more creative because you have to find a way to function within a certain set of boundaries and that was always how WAF functioned and how I looked at things was all right if you're giving me a set of really strict parameters and rules then I'm going to do everything I can to maximize every square inch of that area that you're giving me to operate. And then I'm going to put my toe over the line just enough where you're not going to stop what we're doing, but we're definitely not going to be comfortable in that restricted area. And that creativity of having to function with all of those restrictions, a lot of time made it fun. But, you know, I mean, being able to say fuck whenever I want would have been great. And now that I can do that, it's like, it's great, but you know, I don't stress about it like I used to, but other than that, no, it's like, I, especially with technology, I think we maximized technology when we had access to it. And we were always on the forefront when it came to the internet and video and social media and, and, you know, tried new things with live broadcasts and band interaction. And, and the band's always new. God only knows what AAF's going to ask us to do, but it's going to be something we're going to have to deal with because it's going to be something that's never been done before. And I love the fact that that's what we were kind of famous for. So I just hope that moving forward with this new endeavor that I can continue to do that. It's just that the restrictions are different now. Now there're financial restrictions and and spatial restrictions because I can't be in the same room with people anymore.
2: Right. Very fascinating. No, I uh, I wish you all the success and whatever I can do to help get your uh, stuff out there, I'll totally behind it.
0: Well, John, I appreciate you being so generous with your time, and it's you know it's nice to know that you are you know, safe and healthy, obviously, and that you're making your way through in the best way that you can, you know, with your company and and trying to move touring forward and to hopefully be able to find a way for these bands to be able to make a living and to, you know, be able to get out of whatever it is that's going on right now, you know, we all need to move forward because the industry that we're all a part of um, is really important and is that stress relief for a lot of people and is that escape? And we all really depend on each other and the artists are the ones that we always turn to in times of celebration and in times of struggle. So we need the artists now more than ever.
2: No, I, uh, I agree and thank you for doing your part to uh, kind of help facilitate that.
0: Is John Guarnieri, Director of Security for Shinedown, COO for Silver Spear Security, and a former Secret Service agent. I thought he was filled with really interesting knowledge and uh, a unique perspective on a lot of the things that are going on in the world right now, especially during this election cycle, and also kind of a backstage, behind-the-scenes look at how the artists that we all know and love are protected while they are out on the road, and hopefully they will be able to return to the road quickly. You can check out the description in this podcast to get the custom playlist and links to John's Instagram and security company. And also there are links to all of my socials. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Mistress W Don't forget, Cocktails in the War Room every Tuesday night at 8.30 p.m. Boston time. Plus, at Mistress Carrie on Twitter and YouTube and Cameo. And to get yourself a Mistress Carrie backstage pass, go to patreon.com slash Mistress Carrie. Thank you so much for checking out the podcast. If you don't mind giving it a five-star review and maybe leaving a comment. And don't forget to click subscribe so you never miss an episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast.